In this episode, we talk about why academia fails. Or better, what we may learn from the book Why Nations Fail, about the shortcomings of academia. But before we get to it, we will talk briefly about what happened over the last month. Most importantly, I will give you my report on the global climate strike, as I experienced it in Lisbon on September 27th. This episode is special, in the sense that we decided to make it a two-part episode. In the first part, we basically set up the background information, and in the November talk episode, we will have a proper structured discussion. And you have the chance to contribute. If you have read the book How Nations Fail, or are for other reasons familiar with the concepts of extracting and inclusive institutions, give us your feedback on how this could be applied to academia. You can send me messages on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at CypherProgress. DMs are open. Or through email, info at scienceforprogress.eu. We actually already had a lively and long discussion on the topic, which you can listen to in the extended episode on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash progress if you pledge the equivalent of $5.99 per month. But it will be a different discussion from the one that we'll have in part two in the November episode. As always, you'll find a summary and additional information in our show notes on www.scienceforprogress.eu. My co-host is Bart Curtin. I'm your host, Dennis Eckmeyer, and this is episode 35 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. Hello, Bart. Hello, Dennis. How was your week? Oh, uh, stressful. I'm very tired, to be honest. What did you do? I moved from Portugal to Germany. Ah, and in October, that sounds like a perfect weather choice. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Away uh, yeah. from the stinking sun, back to the good old drizzle rain of Germany. <laughs> That's exactly it. So in Portugal, we had clear skies and uh, top 20s uh, Celsius, whereas here it's a little bit colder and a little bit darker, <laughs> uh, more clouds and more rain. That's what it is. So I had to clean up my apartment and get rid of all the things that I had to pay on a monthly basis, the gym, electricity and water and gas. And my phone, which didn't work because for some reason cancelling your phone contract is the most difficult thing to do of all these things. Everything else was no problem. It was like you could do it online or with a phone call. But that was just, I don't know. But I don't want to go into detail about that. But I did take the time to go to the climate march in Lisbon. All right, how was that? Yeah, so as hopefully everybody knows, last week was the uh, climate strike week globally. It started uh, September 20th, Friday, in, and in Germany it was on September 20th. And it went the whole week, and in Lisbon it was uh, September 27th, and that's when I went. And yeah, it was... Uh, I want to say uplifting, but then I'm one of those assholes who is like, oh, those young people give me so much hope that in future things will change. 
And the young people are like, fuck you, you have to change it now. <laughs> We're not here to give you hope. We're here to make you do shit. <laughs> so I didn't catch it right because there was so much irony at both sides of this argument that <laughs> I'm not so you they gave you hope or they didn't so this is the thing you you see those young people and they are having fun and stuff right and it does give you hope i actually did feel that for a minute and then i realized no this is not what they want they don't want us older people to be hopeful in them They're trying to tell us, people, everything is fucked. Do something. Like, that's that's the whole how dare you speech, again, that Greta Thunberg uh, gave. When she said, how dare you tell us that we make you hopeful. We don't want you to be hopeful. We want you to act on climate change. So I felt like a little bit of an asshole. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. There were different different groups. So the Portuguese uh, chapter of uh, Fridays for Future was there. Um, obviously, they have a Portuguese name that I don't dare to, <laughs> to pronounce. Oh, come on, you have to. <laughs> um, I think it's uh, Greve Climatico Estudantil. Huh, okay. So Climate stray, Strike of the Students. Students Climate Strike. Yeah. Not too bad. Uh, yeah, well, I hope no, you, so. I mean, your pronunciation, <laughs> my, not the my... name. The name is quite forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, we have we have Portuguese listeners. <laughs> Do we? Oh, yeah. Please I feedback so. on on the pronunciation of Dennis Eckmeyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the to read your comments. <laughs> okay, so those were there. And um, Extinction Rebellion was there, who I mostly knew from their uh, actions in London a while ago, where they basically closed the whole center of London. And there are an adults uh, demonstration. Um, it's a peaceful rebellion or a nonviolent rebellion, let's say. Um, and they have this interesting tactic or they had it in London, that they wanted to get as many as possible of them to be arrested by the police to make a statement. So they wanted to get arrested for civil unrest in order okay. to show that, that they mean it, <laughs> that they really want okay, but what, people to act. How did they change. try to get arrested? So uh, they, they blocked the streets um, in London. So London has an inner part that is mostly reachable over bridges. I think there are five main bridges, and they just closed them. They just uh, stepped on the bridge and demonstrated on that bridge and closed it. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the big uh, how did they do it in Lisbon then? So they didn't do that in Lisbon. In Lisbon, they just uh, walked with the main demonstration. They didn't shut anything down illegally. Um, It was all well prepared. The police knew where they were going, etc., etc. So yeah, uh, so they just took part in the what I guess was initial uh, initialized by uh, Fridays for Future. But I would have to look it up. It's possible that they did that together. 
Um, so either they just joined or uh, they were also organizers, but I will have to figure that out. And yeah, and there were political parties there. Um, as you may know, uh, Portugal is uh, left-leaning overall, so there were socialists. Um, they had a banner saying socialism and environmentalism go together, uh, basically. And then there were other groups that I didn't know. There were clearly some uh, vegan groups, go vegan. Um, yeah, so it was a, a great variety of people, young people, old people, different political identities, I would say. Everybody so, very hopeful. <laughs> so I have this very interesting picture where you see young adults um, in their 20s, I guess. They're having an interest, They're having a conversation. They're smiling at each other. But at the same time, they're holding a sign that says, everything is totally fucked. And I thought this is a nice, this is a nice representation of how this whole thing felt. Because on the one hand, of course, they were, I mean, they're not like mad or anything. They're demonstrating. They're still having fun with it. But at the same time, they have this uh, dooming message that they're trying to convey um, with their chants and with their signs. So it's a it's an interesting atmosphere, I would say, to be part there. Um, what they didn't have were uh, speeches, at least not at that uh, demo. I only went to the demonstration, to the march, uh, but they had different things going on throughout the day. Um, so probably they had their speeches uh, at, at another place. And I guess I only most had... of these speeches would be in Portuguese, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, but I, I guess I could have understood the gist of it. I took a lot of pictures that can be seen on our social media, Cypher Progress, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And I took footage, so videos, and maybe I'll make a little video out of it. My week was pretty good. We two pa Another two papers got accepted. Sweet. Uh, yeah, one was an invited review, and the other one is about the EPO receptor CLR3, which is basically ubiquitous in the animal kingdom. And um, EPO, the thing that bicy uh, professional bicyclists use to pump up their um, performance, actually has a neuroprotective function. So all those uh, um, Tour de France cyclists are very healthy in their brains. Uh, at least their neurons can withstand a lot of oxygenative stress if the EPO ever comes into their brain. I don't know if this happens because of the blood-brain barrier. But uh, yeah, it keeps them from dying. And now we come to our latest section, Bart read a book where Bart attempts to apply what he's learned from reading a book he may or may not have understood. That is a very ironic jingle. <laughs> Don't <laughs> feel completely secure about it. <laughs> But anyhow, yeah, Bart read a book. Yeah. The book's title is Why Nations Fail by Darren Achimoglu and James A. Robinson. 
it's actually and is it is it is it like and nations or b nations nah it's like uh human nations so it's totally not your field no not at all so i'm also not very confident in what i say is completely correct it's a book about economics but from like a world perspective of why um there's inequality in the world i wanted to talk about the extractive and the um participating or inclusive institutions of science what does that even mean an extracting institution um raises the entry barrier for you to participate in a certain societal topic it usually coerces people and takes away their benefits from their work an inclusive institution actually lowers the barrier of entry allows for creative destruction of things that means certain aspects of this societal context will break away because they're not needed anymore and will be replaced by even better or maybe more progressive measures and more and new contexts we can start with the extractive institutions of a nation and that was a pretty it's a pretty interesting thing because um they say there there's something like economic and political institutions that can be anything like a dictator a monarch a parliament and that would be political institutions and the political institutions influ influence strongly the economic institutions that are a that are there for example markets open borders etc one classical way to control the masses in an absolutist regime is that i don't give you rights to your own land you can plow the fields you can sow the seeds but you might not be ripening the uh, the crops because i take it away before you can do so this land situation is actually an extracting um an extracting economic institution it's backed by an extracting political institution a monarchy and the problem is that extracting institutions stifle progress in any which way and the problem with extracting institutions is that the elite or the monarch and the small caste of elite around the monarch are actually losing power by allowing progress and they call hmm. that the fear of creative destruction i see yeah but that's not so institutions are not only monarchs they have a very interesting example of for example wool merchants in england that were trying to close off the market against um silk and other textile productions from asia that could be imported i see and as they are as they were closer to the king's ear than the merchants they could actually ban all imports of these uh, asian textiles mm -hmm. to produce to protect their own thing and now comes the interesting part overseas trade actually built the english empire right yes it did so you That's... need so you, so you need this open trade thing to grow as a as the whole of england but right. the narrow elite of wool merchants actually could stop textile imports for years to come right so this is how and these wool merchants will never prosper on the on the silks coming in but the society in general will prosper by letting these people in right 
So you always have these narrow elites that profit from a certain circumstance in society mm -hmm. that will create extracting institutions. And extracting institution means that usually somebody is taken advantage of. Right. The most classical extracting and most gross extracting institution is slavery. Okay. So it's exploitation, basically. It's more than exploitation, but exploitation is, I would say, in my small-minded, natural, scientific mind, the main aspect of extracting institutions. I see. Okay. It's coercing people to do your work under worse situations. Right. And then there's inclusive institutions. Inclusive institutions lower the entry barrier mm -hmm. into this into the market. They help you participate in the economic situation of your nation. Having a parliament in which you are represented as a citizen is one of the most important participating or inclusive institutions. How I came to this topic, because I found it quite interesting, that you can actually name inclusive and um, extracting institutions in academia. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it's the question who created those institutions. And you have to do relatively small changes to change something from an extracting institution into an inclusive institution. Hmm. So, so what are your examples for extracting and including institutions in academia? I would say a clear extracting institution is that, at least in biology, this might be different in your field, we pay our PhDs half a wage. A PhD works more than 40 hours right. very often. Yes. Even so that the state clearly dictates this is not allowed and we pay them not even a full wage. But in any other job that I know of in Germany, the situation is not so weird. People get either paid more or they at least are paid a full wage. So this is, to my point of view, an extracting institution. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, there are quite a number of examples that I had to face in my, um, in my career where I would say this is actually falsely participating in the output of a scientific endeavor. Most classically, co-authoring people that didn't participate in the study or didn't contribute to the study. Right, yes. And that, again, is an extracting institution, I would say. Yeah. Well, so, so when you talk about institutions, you don't necessarily mean official rules, but like underlying social contracts that happen behind the curtains, basically. Yes, this is, yeah, an institution in the language of uh, Jameson and Amitjoglu are any entity in society. I can, could be like an unspoken contract or or state federal bureau. I but see. it's some sort, yeah, but in our case, it's basically where I would say the problem lies is in the higher echelons of academia. What makes the difference between, um, for example, France and England in the time of the Industrial Revolution, why does it start in England, is quite clear. Because the parliament was, placed, was um, constructed differently. The French parliament was of the gentry 
and uh, didn't include many diverse aspects of the society. Mm -hmm. So the king was controlled less than in England, where many more um, people from society actually could participate in the in the parliament, and the parliament wouldn't let the king uh, hamper progress. Right. And this is where I think we come to one of the weirdest parts in science. So all search committees that I ever participated in had a clear majority of professors against staff scientists, against students. Mm -hmm. Even if all like student representatives, staff scientists would combine their votes, it would be at least one vote short of the professor's votes. And that's standard the Senate committee here. So there might be good reasons for that. One that when I discussed this with my colleagues was that if we would let people participate in the real numbers of people inside the university, all search committees would be decided by the students because True. they are by far the largest group. Right. And now the question is, would that be good? I guess it would be much better for the teaching Possibly. But maybe. Well, yeah. I guess so. But possibly it would be also worse for the scientific aspects of a professorship. I'm not so sure about that. I think it would be neutral in, in that regard. It would be random. It would not be negative on, on the research, I think. So, but my point is, first of all, I, I'm not quite sure. I'm still on the fence about, like, should we have even participation in that like should students really like have the majority in the search committees mm -hmm. and i guess this is going to be hard but i think there's also quite a lot of experience involved in being a professor yeah but on the other hand the, so you can also not forget the professors are the people who for the rest of their lives or careers <laughs> have to work with that person right Whereas the students come in and then they're four years there and then they're done and then they leave. And the professors are stuck with that person forever. But if you're a 25, uh, let's say you're a 35 year old person and you come into an institution, like you come into a university and you get your professorship, you're stuck with 17 other blokes and girls that you didn't choose and that you might not have chosen. There are just not enough jobs to be choosy. That's true. Yeah, but here comes the kicker. Why is this the case? That's the extractive institution in that. That there aren't enough uh, professorships? Imagine a world in which not professors would choose new professors. That's the self, um, how it's called, self-reproducing elite of academia. Right, that's true. Professors choose other professors. Right, that look like them and talk like them. They're all, all old white guys. Yeah, of course. Because if you're if you're the deciding elite, you actually have to fear uh, creative destruction. And Bart has an idea. It's easy. You only need maybe only need two very small tweaks. You have to change the allocation of power in the search committees so that they're just even and not biased already. Or you have to change the diversity inside the professor group. And that isn't actually a lot to do. This is basically more handleable than like getting rid of all professorships. But it will already 
pave the way for more for more for the ability of disruptive change and this is the point where we had a rather long but uh lively discussion which i think deserves its own episode and if you already have some opinion to share let us know i can only recommend reading why nations fail and um he can write us his opinion or she can write us her opinion on how this has influence on academia and what we might have gotten wrong about like extracting and inclusive institutions. Info at scienceforprogress.eu or on social media at scifoprogress for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Oh, what's the next episode about? I think the next episode is the... Uh... Is another Energiewende episode on climate change, where I talked to another scientist of the Helmholtz Institute about how we can um, overcome the problems with the unreliability of renewable energy. As you know, there's always the argument, what do we do when there's no wind and it's dark out? <laughs> ah. So uh, it's... Uh, I guess we turn on the batteries or something like that. That is one of the possibilities. The other possibility is to think big and not national, but international and have a power grid that allows to move power uh, from across Europe back and forth. Is there is, Are there super capacitors involved? Uh, I don't like know. Like huge tools. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Tesla-like capacitors. <laughs> <laughs> like I want, that, I want that have lightning that going as... back and forth between yeah, them. Yeah, like exactly the... like that. <laughs> like in good old 1950s science fiction metropolis. Yeah. yeah. You will find the summary of this episode and links for further readings in the show notes, alongside with a link to the complete conversation that is available to you if you are a supporter on Patreon. Please subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and maybe give us a nice rating or even write us a review. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Goodbye, listener.